we won't read anything today. I'll just kind of narrate it as we go through this. Hope you've been able to read. Uh, we're going to cover two through four this week if we can. Uh, just some of the narration that's going on here. This is the title of the early years of David's reign. And we'll see here that he reigned for the first seven and a half years just over the Hebron, uh, really kind of over the Judah area, which later was called Judah. And then uh, after seven and a half years, the kingdom was combined in, in, in uh, north, except that he reigned as well. So that's kind of what we were going to see, how all that took place today. Uh, we saw last week uh, David as he mourned and also lamented Saul and Jonathan that there's a difference between initial emotional grief and later on reflecting on your grief biblically and developing biblical God-honoring observations. This is called a lament. I mean, there's a, I think there's a, a precedent in the Word of God that we are to, you know, well, use everything for the glory of God, right? This would include our grief. Include our, our, our sorrowful experiences. What David did, he wrote about it. He wrote something to be read by others about the experience. So David sets an example of sharing the things you learn and the ways the Lord helps you, helps you and others as a way to serve both the Lord and the church. And so uh, that brings us into chapter 2, where David is anointed king of Judah and uh, We'll find here that um, Abner, who was Saul's captain of the army, um, did not accept David's rule, and so he makes uh, well, knows all about him, but he basically made Ishbosheth, one of Saul's sons, to be the king over the northern part that did not accept David's rule. And we're going to see here that Abner does this, even though he knows that David had been anointed. Abner is a pragmatic man, and he kind of does whatever he thinks is best for him at the moment, which does not serve him well. But here in chapter 2, um, David uh, officially begins to rule, although it isn't complete, as we said. Uh, it'll be seven and a half years later. And, and something here just about, just to see kind of a connection between uh, David, his reign, and Jesus' reign, is that we know that with Jesus, his reign has begun, but it is small. Uh, that we, one of the things he says is that it, it'll be like the grain of a mustard seed. It will start small and grow bigger. It'll be like yeast. It'll be something that is getting bigger, but it is not apparent to the world. And... Uh, so we see kind of the, the same idea. Someday uh, Jesus' reign will be universal uh, and uh, open, and, and, and it's going to grow to that. And so it's a period of time. And so there's a, maybe a similarity here with David and Jesus as well. But Abner and the northern tribe at this point don't recognize uh, David's authority and having, in a sense, rejecting the Lord's authority since the Lord had had David um, anointed and everybody knew that. But one of the things we notice here in verse 5 is the winsomeness of David. That David uh, was a man who tried to, uh, many, in many different ways, uh, reach people's hearts and to accept him and to be good to them and not to try to force his reign. Uh, we see that in verse 5 where it says, David sent messengers to the men of Jabesh Gilead, which again were very loyal to Saul, as we saw last week. 
and said to them, May you be blessed by the Lord because you showed this loyalty to Saul, your Lord, and buried him. And now may the Lord show steadfast love and faithfulness to you, and so forth. And then, he, you know, verse 7, Therefore let your hands be strong and be valiant, for Saul, your Lord, is dead, and the house of Judah is anointed me king over them. And so he's making an appeal for them to uh, accept him as king. But uh, starting in verse 8, we see that Abner uh, conspires, and uh, they don't immediately do that. And so, again, it's a, just a connection there with uh, Jesus' way he rules. Jesus, remember in chapter 11 of Matthew, says, Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you'll find rest in your soul. Even though God is God, God as our Creator deserves uh, our absolute uh, adoration, right? Yet, that's not how the Lord comes across as such. It's more than just force, it's more than just duty. It is, I want you to see my goodness, how wonderful I am, and how that benefits you. And so the Lord attracts us. Now, you know, we understand that we're to pray, that we need the operation of the Holy Spirit, but the Lord reaches out to us in love, and, and we have no excuse to not accept Him as our Lord and Savior because of who, of who He is and how good He is. And so, um, you know, just to think, again, something that reminds me of Jesus Christ. But in verse 8, we see uh, Abner leading a rebellion, as it were, against David's rule. Now, there's questions with the commentators as to, are the events that we're reading here in chapters 2 through 4, do they happen at the beginning of the seven and a half year reign of David, or at the end? And I think that primarily, it makes this makes more sense as you read through it, that most of this took place at the end get into that in chapters 3 and 4, but probably initially, what we're seeing here in chapter 2, with the general rebellion, would be obviously what took place very soon after David was anointed king of Hebron. And so, there's there's that took place soon, and then it says, uh, I think at the beginning of chapter 3, there was a long war between the house of Saul and the house of David, and that would be be most of the seven and a half years, and then towards the end, uh, we'll see what took place there, where David becomes the king of the whole nation. One thing you might notice, um, if you're reading the accounts over in First Chronicles, and in First and Second Chronicles, basically just sum up what happens in First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings. Although it generally adds different. It doesn't say some of the things, it doesn't repeat some of the stuff, but it adds new information. So when you read these things, you almost have to read them in parallel to kind of get a full story in some cases. And we find over, for instance, in First Chronicles 8.33, that Ishbosheth originally was called Ishbael. And the same with Mephibosheth, that uh, we'll talk about, we've already talked about him and we'll talk a little bit more about him today. He also had Baal in his name initially. But over in First Chronicles, we they use a different name. Like the name has been uh, changed. Because we're seeing that here in our account. It's Bosheth, not Ishbael. As you see there at the end of uh, And that's the same person. And there's different uh, you know, ways to explain that that are interesting. Uh, some say that, well, it just shows how idolatrous um, 
saw was that he would name some of his sons, he would incorporate Baal into their name. Uh, and so the, uh, the, the writers of Second Chronicles would change that to, because Baal had such a bad connotation, they just removed that part of it and kind of changed their names. I think uh, that, that might be the case, but I don't necessarily think that Saul was so idolatrous when he had his sons that he named them after Baal, and others have said, oh look, Baal did not have a stigma on it that it did later on. It just was a normal word for God, a word for God, and that uh, Saul uh, was incorporated with the, that use of God in their name, and that's all there was to it. Obviously, uh, I think the more pious use perhaps used El, which was the form of God, um, like El Chan or something like that. But anyway, just in case you see that, you know, that we understand that uh, that was changed later on for whatever reason it was. But, um, as we said, Abner knows full well who the Lord's choice was. In fact, we read it, we'll see that in chapter 3, verse 9, starting in verse 9, for instance. Uh, it says, God do so to Abner and more also. If I, this is when Abner changes his mind and decides to back David. If I do not accomplish for David what the Lord has sworn to him. So see, Abner knew that David was anointed and so forth and all the things that took place there. And so he said, I'm going to transfer the kingdom from the house of Saul and set up the throne of David over Israel and over Judah. He was going to help do that. Then over in um, verse 18, for instance, now then bring it about, for the Lord has promised David, saying, by the hand of my servant David, I will save my people in Israel from the hand of the Philistines and from the hand of their enemies. So, and Abner knew full well who David was and, and what was going on there. Of course, he had served Saul for several years here, and Saul tried to kill David. Um, but he seems to uh, be very pragmatic in his support of Saul, as we'll see this in the, in the way he during these seven and a half years, and, and say, well, why did he resist David's rule when he knew that the Lord had um, uh, anointed him king? Why doesn't he fall in line? Because, you know, and if, if you think about it, it's not that unusual, because even we tend to think and do things, even though we know what the Bible teaches, and even though we know the reality of things, we get caught up in what we want. Someone compared it to uh, Goebel, uh, or no, excuse me, Goring in World War II, who was told by one of the generals that the uh, we had shot down several American fighter planes over in a certain area. Well, that area happened to be well within the German borders, and Go and Goering said, "No, you did not shoot down any American planes." He said, "Yeah, we did." He took them. Over there, and he showed the planes, and, and Gary said, "No, you did not." And he got witnesses who saw it. He said, and Gary said, "Look, I am commanding you that uh, we did not shoot down any American planes." And you go, "Why in the world would he do that?" Because it was uh, it would be to admit that the Americans had gotten that far into uh, past their defenses, and that, that they were uh, the, the war was not going well. So. The narrative, he says, will be this, that there were no Americans got in that way. And I, you know, I reason that, I thought, you know, boy, is that not what happens under every dictatorship? What happens under communism? 
uh, we're seeing it in our own country, is that there we have a narrative that you will speak and you, it is not acceptable to say anything contrary to what we want it to be. Right? That's how you control people. And it's a, but anyway, all that to say that, that it's not unusual for us to say and to do things that we know are not right, but it's what we want, and that's what Abner's doing. It doesn't matter what the Lord wants. It, I, I think I can remain second in command and, and have some measure of power because he's more or less controlled it. it but that's what I'm going to do. It doesn't matter about the Lord's will. And so sin affects us. So that even when faced with biblical teaching and empirical evidences, uh, we see how sin affects people's lives. We are willing to uh, do whatever it is we want to do. Um, and even if we suffer bad before. So it's one thing we need to constantly be on guard. Am I submitting to the word of God or to my own thinking? And it's the same thing that's going to happen with Joab. David's the commander when David dies. Uh, that Joab knows that David had anointed Saul to be the king after him. And Joab tries to get somebody else to be the king. And he pays the price for that as well. So it's, again, it's, just, it's a difficult thing. And so... <clears throat> When uh, they kind of meet, the opposing forces meet around this pool, as you read starting in verse 12, and they, they seem to say, look, let's 12 of the younger guys, uh, and, and Joab and these guys probably weren't much over 30 themselves, because remember they were David's cousins and all this, and, you know, so however long they saw him reign, David reigned 40 years after this, so they could have been all that old, but they had the younger guys, probably in the 20 or 20, early 20s. Let 12 of them on each side get up and fight it out. Perhaps they were going to let that be the contest or, you know, who knows. Well, an interesting kind of odd battle that they, they all come together, a 12 each to their own partner. They all grab hold of the other one's beard, take a sword and stick it into each other and they all fall down dead. So kind of an odd situation and that causes everybody else to, to join in the fight. And they're fighting, and uh, so the battle goes on here. And of course, the three sons of Guria, again the three brothers, Joab, Abishai, and Asahel. We've talked about some of them already. Joab being the uh, captain of the guard, as it were. Um, they uh, the battle goes against Abner, and Abner eventually takes off. And it says that Asahel, Asahel was a very fast runner, starts to chase. Abner, of course, is catching up to him. Abner told him, look, turn aside, find someone that you can handle, a younger guy, and kill him, and, uh, you know, take his spoil. I don't want to kill you. I don't want, I don't want to face your brothers. Well, he wouldn't stop, so it says that um, Abner took his sword as they were running, and no doubt stopped and shoved it back, and it went right through Abner, and he died. Then Abishai, Joab and Abishai, of course, chase Abner, having heard about that, and they they come across him. Abner finds the, the uh, a group of Benjamites, and they gather together for battle. And Abner basically calls out to Joab and says, "Look, why why are we doing this? Why are, why are good people dying?" And calms Joab down. And Joab more or less thanks him for cooler heads prevailing, and they leave. And that's how it is. Although clearly there is uh, skirmishes for several years, as we read at the beginning of chapter 3. 
chapter 3 begins with David marrying different women, as was the custom that day of a king, to, um, he was known, and in some cases, just by the number and beauty of his harem, with David, it was probably uh, also, as most of us was too, uh, you, you find women who were uh, daughters of people who potentially were your enemies, uh, or your friends, and you would marry them, and that would strengthen uh, and, and uh, less likely for there to be any kind of conflict with those people, right? And that's kind of what David is doing here. Um, again, the, the big weakness with David was family, with his marriages, and all these kind of things. And so, so we see David beginning to do this kind of thing. Um, in, in verse 2, it begins this list of... Uh, is the wives that he took during this time. Um, then it goes on in verse 6, there's war between the house of David and the house of Saul. Abner was making himself strong in the house of Saul. Uh, and Saul had a concubine. Of course, Saul's dead, but he, but he has his wives would have still been considered his wives and kind of off limits. And he goes to one of them, one of the concubines, he goes and lays with her. And Ishbosheth, Saul's son, hears about this and confronts Abner because it was kind of a, to do something like that would be a, a kind of a, 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 a act of rebellion. That if you was to sleep with the king's wife, obviously, or even a concubine, which was his property, you were kind of setting yourself up to uh, rebel against his authority. And Ishbosheth basically confronts him about that, and Adra gets upset with him. And, and so I think this probably takes place towards the end of seven and a half years because. This is going to be the end of the rebellion, and very soon after this, David is going to be king. So it gets uh, Abner angry in verse 8 over the words of Ephosheth, and said, Am I a dog's head of Judah? To this day I keep showing steadfast love to the house of Saul, your father, to his brothers, to, and to his friends, and have not given you into the hand of David, and yet you charge your day with the fault concerning a woman. So Abner's not particularly happy about being confronted by someone that he doesn't consider, he doesn't really respect anyway, um, a weakling in his mind. And so that's what, as we read earlier, uh, God do to me, and more so, if I don't basically help David become king. And so it says from that point on, Ishmael could not answer Abner another word because he was afraid of him there in verse 11. And so Abner... Uh, sends messengers to David, basically saying, look, I'm ready to come over and bring the northern tribes over uh, with you <clears throat> and uh, to, to support you. And so, but here again, we see Abner, who's the power behind the throne, Ishmael can do nothing, and um, Abner's theology is not what obviously has caused him to support David, but his pride has been hurt, and so now he figures it's better to be with David, who I respect, than to be with Ishbosheth, that I don't respect. And so we see this pragmatic way of living that, that it's going to be his downfall. And so in verse 12, in all this, David has not been the aggressor, it appears, and, and has no problem taking the kingdom from Ishbosheth. But notice how he does this. Abner sends this message to David. <coughs> And uh, verse 13, and he said, Good, I will make a covenant with you, but one thing I require of you, and that is that you shall not see my face unless you first bring Michael, Saul's daughter, when you come to see my face. 
Then David sent messengers to Ishbosheth, saw his son, saying, Give me my wife Michael, from whom I paid the bridal price of a hundred foreskins of the Philistines. And Ishbosheth sent and took her from her husband, gave it to him. <clears throat> so I think Ishbosheth at this point realizes that this is a done deal, and he's not going to fight it anymore. So they take her from, remember Saul had given her to somebody else's wife, and David wants her back. Now, this is interesting as to why, because Michael does not seem to, there's really not a whole lot said about her that's good, and later on she becomes a problem, and we'll get to in a couple of chapters. So why does David want her? It's not like he's got enough wives. Um, and it, it's possible that he has a special affection for her. Maybe she, someone said, maybe she's just beautiful, so he wants her. In all likelihood, though, it's precisely because of what was already said. She was Saul's daughter, so she represented, uh, you know, his authority and his kingship by taking uh, the, the, the daughter of Saul. Others said, "Well, this should be a violation of Deuteronomy 24. Remember that if you divorce a wife and she marries somebody else, and when she marries somebody else, you can never take her back to be your wife." And I'm not exactly sure why. You know, there's different reasons why that perhaps is wrong given, but it was a law anyway. But with David's a little bit different, probably, because Michael was basically kidnapped, taken away from David. David never agreed to it, and it's not, she was not divorced. Uh, in, in, in a sense, she was married to two people at the same time. So David wants her back. So anyway, it's an interesting thing, but that's what he wants. So she's given back to David. And then, um, in verses 22 and following, Abner comes with her to, to David in Hebron, and he make, David makes a feast. We, and again, we see that David is all about doing what is uh, to get on the people's good side. He makes a feast for Abner. He's not trying to, uh, you know, he has to kill Abner. He doesn't say, well, you are a lord of me, so I don't want him a part of you. He tries to make peace. Uh, you know, you, you see, he's just got a great heart for a leader. And so they have this um, feast for Abner, where basically the two uh, armies are joined together. Well, Joab is away. Remember, Joab has no use for Abner because he killed his brother, even though it was a battle. And so he had no reason to uh, hold this against Abner. So when he someone tells him when he gets back, uh, David's made peace with Abner and sent him away in, in peace. And so Joab goes, finds Abner, and talks to him like everything's okay, and assassinates him. And uh, so David then, and this is this is something that perhaps we see a character flaw in, flaw in David because David should have, by all accounts, really he should have. Joab killed because he murdered Abner, and but of course he was his cousin. And David seems to have a problem with discipline. He has, seems to have a problem with allowing family to do what they want to do. David basically curses Joab for doing that. You know, may this be upon you, and it may me and my kingdom be innocent of this innocent blood. And uh, but he doesn't. That's all he does. Um, of course, as I said before, when we get to the first. Kings, we're going to see where this comes back and bites a Joab. So we see how the Lord sees all this. 
he allowed David's curse to come true. But um, just again, something to remind ourselves that uh, we need to be careful of taking matters into our own hands. Um, you know, Joab might have been thinking that, well, Abner now becomes a uh, someone who, who could take his place, and uh, so he, I don't think he really worried about David's safety. I think he was about, he killed my brother. You know, in other words, I, I, it doesn't matter what the king says, Joab's loyalty really wasn't to the Lord, he wasn't to David, even though he was loyal to David as far as it went, except when it crossed what he wanted. And there we see the principle that we have to be careful about. A lot of people, you know, cause division uh, in the church, for instance. It's under the guise of holiness, but when you get, when you find out their motives, you realize it's totally selfish because you can always. It doesn't take long, certainly not after a period of time, when you get to know somebody. What their what motivates them? You see it in the way they interact with God's people, with the way they interact with their family sometimes, their friends, with the way they carry their business. Whatever they do, the way that they live in the church, it doesn't take long to realize, well, at the end of the day, that person really only cares about how everything affects them. They're not really concerned with the growth of the church or peace and unity in the church or whether someone uh, is, is a it's growing in the Lord. Those things really don't matter. It's about the money or it's about getting their way. And I just say that because as a church, that's something we have to always be careful about. You know, as a pastor too, look, this is the Lord's work. My life has given me to me and I'm a steward of, of what he has given to me to be used for him. And our motives cannot be like here, um, Abner's who uh, betrays David, in a sense. He says as well as David, but he goes behind his back and does something. And he'll pay the price for that. Uh, in verse 31 of chapter 3, David said to Joab, to all the people who are with him, and notice here how David, his heart of trying to have peace with all people in the kingdom, Tear your clothes and put on sackcloth and mourn for Abner. And David followed the, the buyer, that is the, 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 the uh, thing that was carrying the body to the funeral. He buried Abner at Hebron. And the uh, king lifted up his voice and wept at the grave of Abner. And all the people wept. And the king lament, lamented for Abner, saying, So here you go, see another lament of those short ones. Should Abner die as a fool dies, your hand hands were not bound, your feet were not fettered, as one falls for the wicked you have fallen. And so David mourns this, but then he, um, you know, he goes through a period of mourning. Then the latter part of this chapter, he pronounces this curse upon the sons of Juria for their, their bloodthirstiness, and uh, does this in a public fashion to let northern tribes know that they killed Abner, who the northern tribes obviously had some sense of loyalty to Abner. He distanced himself with what Joab had done. Alright, that brings us to chapter 4. And here, uh, Isbosheth is murdered. Um, get to it in my notes here. Look at 
Uh, and, and it's a familiar account as two men have decided, well, what can we do to get on David's good side? And so they sneak into Abner's house while, excuse me, uh, Ishbosheth's house while he's taking a nap there in the middle of the day, and he, they kill him in his sleep. Cut off his head, bring it to David, and say, look, we have triumphed for your sake, of course, over your enemy, and so forth. And unfortunately, by now, some people just don't seem to learn that that's not the way David works. He doesn't accept that. You can raise your hand against Ishbosheth was the king. And I think, again, David no doubt does this in part, at least, because he doesn't want it happening to him. So you live by the sword, and then you die by the sword. If you get the king by the sword, if you force yourself upon people, you'll never have the royalty to some degree. And that's, we talked about this, the leadership, the role model of David with leadership is to win the hearts of those that uh, are to follow you. Because if you can't do that, they're not going to ever accept it like it should be. And so David is not impressed by this. Of course, it was cowardly. And uh, so what we, we read about this in starting in verse uh, 7. Uh, when they came to, into the house as he lay on his bed, in his bedroom, they struck him and put him to death and beheaded him. Uh, an awkward way of, of, of saying this, um, perhaps uh, it's, it's because of the, the Hebrew way of telling this, and they do this, uh, in a, kind of, they, they repeat the same thing, so they, it maybe it's been, it's been suggested that it's written kind of tongue-in-cheek or sarcastically. In other words, they struck him, they put him to death, they beheaded him while he's sleeping. So they, they repeated it kind of a redundant way of repeating this to show just the despicable thing that they did here. Uh, verse 8, And brought the head of Ishbosheth to Hebron. And they said to the king, Here is the head of Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, your enemy, who shot your life. The Lord avenged my lord the king this day on Saul and on his offspring. And no doubt they knew that that was the curse had been upon Saul and his offspring, and so they take matters into their own hands. Um, so here you got the, basically these two macho men who kill Ishbosheth while he's napping, and so there's a sense of satire here, as I said, which is not uncommon. That you read about it, you know, in, in scriptures, a lot of time with idolatry, the Lord uh, uses humor and, and satire to show how silly it is to worship pieces of wood or stone. Uh, you see it in Daniel 3. Remember the story of, of the three Hebrew uh, sons, uh, Meshach, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And uh, they, it says there three times that, um, or no, more than that, I think, nine times that it, it repeats there that Nebuchadnezzar set up this image of himself uh, it's, it's almost like satire. It's like this, the, the, the three Hebrew boys are lit watching this and they're seeing somebody or made this statue and set it up. So it's, it's just a piece of rock that somebody has set up and they're told to worship it. And they're, they're saying, no, we're not going to worship it. It's just a huge uh, piece of liturgical uh, stoneware sitting on the plain of Dura, uh, we're not going to worship it. It's no God. 
you know, and, and again, so it, the, the, the Bible has a way of showing the silliness, not to mention the futile end of those who are idolaters. It'd be like me cutting out a tree, you know, drawing or carving a face in it and calling it, you know, worshiping it. it it's, it's ridiculous. And that's, of course, what we do all the time when we put anything before the Lord. And so, um, if they wanted to put their, throw their, sort, their support behind David, that would be a good thing. But it seems, again, they're using Ishbosheth's death instead to gain some sort of leverage on David. And the problem here, as we've seen already, of course, we know three times this has not worked out. This is the third time this has not worked out for people. But remember back in the cave, when David had the opportunity to kill Saul, he did not. And at one point we made was that just because you have an offer, the door is open, you have opportunity, does not mean that that's the Lord leading you to do something. You know, otherwise, however many Christians are on earth, we would all have our own way of determining God's will or whatever happens to be going on around us. And yet, no, this is how we determine God's will. And we take open doors, we take opportunities, circumstances, and we say, okay, now look, there are, there's a number of ways perhaps that I can react to this. What would be the one that honors the Lord, that would, that would fall in line with the principles of God's word? And that's the thing that they did not do. They saw opportunity as an opportunity for them to do something. Then they, they act like, well, this is God giving you a leverage, or, uh, what, what word they use, though? The Lord is, is, you know, killing off your enemies for you and all this kind of stuff. And they basically, He's used us to do it. So they're using theology to disobey the Lord. And again, that's something that's easy for us to do. We we just, it's it's kind of like saying, well, I have lied several times and I haven't been struck by lightning. So it must be okay. Now, just because you can do something doesn't mean it's the right thing to do, and um, that's the kind of that's idolatry, obviously, right? And, and it can be useful because that kind of God who um, kind of lets us get away with stuff is a God that is the flesh, but it's not the true God. So these two men here in verse eight have a favorable interpretation of what they did, but David has another. Uh, God is going to take vengeance. That's the word. Vengeance on Saul's seed. He's going to do that, and he, yeah, he used those two guys to do that. But they were in rebellion when they did it, and so they had theology on their lips, but they had blood on their hands. They did not listen to the Lord, and they paid with it with their life. Um, so again, we just need to remind ourselves we don't use circumstances and opportunities as the Bible. So it isn't unlike those who, for the sake of doctrinal purity, supposedly, uh, are always find it their job to correct, uh, inform people with severity and harshness because they're so concerned that every all the doctrines of the Bible are adhered to and understood and taught that they have no grace in their heart towards anybody else. So they do damage in the name of Christ. They do damage, and again, we're certainly all about doctrinal purity, but the doc- doctrine is to conform us to Christ. It's to inform us of 
inform us of Jesus Christ and to conform us to his image. It, doctrine is not to, just to divide or to uh, beat someone over the head with, to emphasize over the end of doctrine, which is be like Christ, right? So we have to be very careful that we, it's not about um, being doctrinally sound, it's also about the end of doctrinal soundness. So it's like, kind of like someone who the church is found in sin, they are going to exercise discipline over them and the offender comes and says, well, wait just a minute, uh, you guys are all just as much a sinner as I am, so you have no right to uh, discipline me. Well, no, because uh, you, you can't use doctrine uh, to deny doctrine or to disobey doctrine. To, to, you can't use the Lord to disobey the Lord. We have to do what is right. And so, uh, again, you see all these things take place, and uh, David has these guys killed. He buries Ishbosheth with his head in the tomb there with Abner. And then that brings us to chapter 5, where we'll see next week what's going that he will be anointed as king over the whole nation. Let's finish, though, by going back to, chapter, to verse 4 of chapter 4. Because this is kind of to me kind of interesting. We just got through hearing about um, kind of what's going on with Ishbosheth and the, these men uh, who who are getting ready to go and to kill him. And then in verse four, it all of a sudden it kind of changes to Jonathan. Jonathan, the son of Saul, had a son who was crippled in his feet. He was five years old when the news about Saul and Jonathan came from Jezreel, before they died. And his nurse took him up and fled. And as he fled in her haste, he fell and became lame, and his name was Mephibosheth. Then he goes right back to those two guys getting ready to go kill Ishbosheth. So to me, this is like, a, this is a, you see it every once in a while with the Lord in flashing lights to say, no, look, there's something that's going to happen here pretty soon, and I don't want you to forget about it. If we, it began with David and Jonathan forming this covenant where Jonathan said, look, if I die, please show kindness to my descendants. And David promises to do that. Jonathan has died. And while we're learning about how David is kind of getting himself in position as king, all of a sudden we're, we're, we're told, oh, by the way, when Jonathan died, his five-year-old son was being carried or clean at the, at the news, and he falls and becomes crippled. And this is perhaps seven years later or so. So now he's probably a teenager, right? Uh, 14, 15 years old or whatever. And we're just being told, oh, by the way, don't forget to finish it, because that name is coming up later on. And let's get to that, I think it's over in chapter 9, so... We just want to keep that before us. Don't let it escape your memory because it will be very significant later on. Right? Any questions or comments? Just kind of scrap some uh, historical accounts and things. Got to get this from point A to point B. Interesting things that we're calling. Some of these, it's setting up some things that will happen later on too. It's always a reason. All right, let's have a word of prayer.
thank you, Heavenly Father, for your love to us this day. We pray that your blessings upon us as we travel back and forth and the bad weather, that we have safety. We pray for those who are not feeling well. We think about certainly those who are away. Uh, think about Jeff's mother who is in, uh, Jeff Nathan's mother who was in the hospital and not doing well. We just pray that you would give him grace and that you might be good to touch her. The infection she's got. And bless our time together, Lord, as we uh, open up your word again and see what good things you have for us.